This episode of the Get Fast podcast is brought to you by Tri-Velo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You are joined as always on every podcast by your hosts. We have former Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly, and I am Jordan Donnelly. In today's episode, I'm asking dad to put his coach's hat on and talk to me about racing season because... We have been in a lot of lockdown, uh, especially in the state of Victoria, uh, but worldwide. And uh, we said eight months ago or seven months ago, whenever this lockdown started, it feels like it's been going forever, uh, that the races have gone away, but they will come back. And they've started to come back. We've had a couple of uh, Ironman or 70.3s in the last few weeks in Australia. um, And a lot of triathletes and cyclists are looking ahead to the summer series um, and races next year on the 2021 calendar picking their goals and with that um, comes some goal setting comes some race planning and program planning and so a lot of athletes now looking ahead and actually seeing a goal and race in mind there's a lot of decision making that needs to happen about which race do you pick why do you pick that and what's the thought process processes that go into that and so i want to ask dad to put his coach's hat on and go through the type of conversations and thought processes you go through when discussing a goal race with an athlete and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate but before we get into that, as always, we want to talk about what's been catching your attention. So, Dad, what's been what's caught your attention in the last couple of weeks? Uh, well, as as you and I have uh, experienced in the last five years, we've been in Belgium for the race that happened to have uh, uh, occurred last night, which is the uh, the Ronde van Vlaanderen, which is the Tour of Flanders, and um, it's kind of special for you and I because we've done it that many times now and uh and knowing all the climbs and the bergs the paderberg koppenberg quaramont um the moor unfortunately i didn't go there this year but uh yeah that 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 was exciting to watch that race from start to finish last night and uh what an epic race it was um to see what happened to alaphilippe and uh van art and uh um uh, who's uh, Vanderpol? Yeah. Vanderpol, yeah. <laughs> Vanderpol, my memory. Um, just to see those three go at it, and then to see uh, Philippe have that horrible crash and break his arm or wrist or whatever—it was just epic. Um, and you know, this is a rivalry, a three three-way rivalry, and there's going to be others as well that are going to be, you know, on our on our uh, radar for the next three five years, like Sargon and Gilbert and. Um, Van Avermaet um, were for the last sort of five, six years. So that's what's caught my attention and uh, it was epic to say the least. Definitely. I want to touch on the Tour of Flanders uh, because it is um, it is now our favourite race to watch. Uh, it is, And that's why we both stayed up last night to 1am watching the whole thing live because it was just uh, so exciting. Um, but I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on uh, the guy who we spoke about a lot over the last couple of months, especially at the Tour, Peter Sagan. What's been happening with him? Well, I, I've got to say, I was I was beside myself with uh, excitement to see him in the Giro win a stage solo. It was, I think, one of the best five stages I've ever watched of a tour and even a, a one-day race. It was exceptional. I and mean, we've seen some spectacular one-day wins with Gilbert winning Flanders and uh, Cancellara and um, Boonen and winning, you know, winning races that that are epic uh, one-day races. But uh, Sagan has been in such poor form. He's been criticised from pillar to post. He's tried his guts out from the tour um, uh, through to the, you know, 
the period between the world championships and, and finally joining into the Giro, which he never does. And just struggling to, you know, to get anywhere on the podium and got thirds and seconds and can't sprint like he used to sprint. And he's just been basically uh, bagged. And, and we did talk about this probably three or four podcasts ago about, you know, getting yourself in the right preparation, the right form at the right time. And that's the key thing that we, we did mention, look, his preparation for the tour wasn't ideal. And he, he didn't spend a lot of time on the trainer like the rest of the world was doing during the lockdown because he, he you know, he just didn't enjoy that. And I think it, it really affected his tour a lot. Um, and he didn't get the outcome that he wanted because everybody was ahead of him. And this is pretty much what we've been talking about at the start of this uh, podcast is, is, you know, picking your race and making sure that you get prepared for that particular day. And, and I would say Sagan's form is the best it's been right now. And, you know, had there been, you know, um, Milan San Remo and Harry Roubaix uh, on in the next few weeks or the world titles, I think you'd see a different Sagan in, in, in these events. And uh, even the tour, he probably, he probably at the moment in the Tour de France, he would probably have won the green jersey um, in the form he's in now compared to what he was in during the tour. And from a coaching point of view, it's so difficult to get that peak and get your form right for that short period that you can hold form. And, and here we are again, seeing someone who's got it wrong, but there's enough, another few races that they can uh, have another go at. And, and oh, what, a, what an unbelievable uh, race he rode. And he was, you know, he was on a course that suited uh, a lot of hill climbers. And look, let's face it, he's not a hill climber. He's a sprinter. And yet he rode away from a, a bunch of seven or eight guys in his breakaway who were much better hill climbers than him. The determination he had to, the resolve that he had in his mental approach to that, that, that stage was, it was just, oh, it had spine, spine tingling for me to see someone um, with 17k to go, you know, do an Alaphilippe almost, which it really was do a Sargon, which is hold hold a bunch, a chasing bunch at between 10 and 20 seconds for 17k. Mm. You know, that's one person riding against 17 of the best riders in the world and stay away. That was incredible. Um, so, so I just take my hat off to him and and congratulate. You know, everything he's done about about resurrecting, never giving up showing the naysayers that he's not done with yet. Um, ah, it's so exciting for the sport. I agree. And I think out of his ridiculous 91 or 110 career wins or whatever it is, that would be one of his most special with how hard it's been for him to, to get there and to defy everyone that said he was done. It was pretty special. Um, what caught my attention? If you get a chance, sorry, I was just going to say, if you get, if you didn't see that stage and you get a chance, watch the replay. It, it is one of, it's, it's really, if you're sitting on the ergo on a recovery day, and you just want to watch something that's inspiring. Absolutely. Put that on. It was like a one day classic inside a grand tour. It was unreal. Um, it was. Yeah. So what's caught your attention? Yeah. I was going to say what's caught my attention, which is actually uh, good timing because of the tour of Flanders last night. But uh, I was thinking about this last week before the tour of Flanders and uh, last uh, two weeks ago, I did my first ever Zwift race. So I'm more of a runner, not a rider. Um, I only ever ride to kind of do a bit of cross training or get a break from running, but I uh, bit the bullet and uh, did my first ever Zwift race, which was, I have to say, so much fun. Uh, I can see why it's so addictive. It was actually one of the most enjoyable things I've done in a while, especially not being able to do any running races or anything. Um, 
I just, I just couldn't believe how fun it was. But I, I wrote down a note to say to you, um, how the hell do you sprint? <laughs> how the hell do you, do you sprint at the end? Um, what are the tactics behind it? Because I was I was totally lost in the big bunch sprint at the end. And it's funny that um, with the Tour of Flanders last night, it came down to a really tactical man versus man sprint between Van Aert and Van der Poel. And uh, I don't think anyone predicted um, Van Aert to lose. Uh, yeah, I actually texted you and said, who's going to take it? And you said Van Aert. And I said, same. I don't think he's going to, I can't see him losing. And then, Vanderpoel outsmarted him. So uh, just briefly touch on uh, for me and maybe for the listeners some some tactics about sprinting because you've won a lot of sprint races in your time. Well, first of all, um, isn't it great that during a lockdown you can find something that you can actually uh, look forward to? And, you know, by you adapting to uh, Zwift cycling, you know, it, it's just given you a whole new lease of life. And that's one of the things that we uh, really pushed on our athletes from March was when, when there's nothing available, let's, let's invent something. And, you know, we've pretty much done that since there. And, and as you just experienced, because you've been actually commentating on our races all, all through this period and you actually got to do one and, and you can understand why people, you know, people are lining up to do, to do these events because it's, there's nothing else there. So it is something to really aspire to, but that's so a really good... what that, what that um, means to our non-traveller listeners. We run a private traveller race for our traveller athletes and we've been doing it every Thursday and cause I don't join in, I've, I've been commentating them, which has been pretty fun. And we upload the replay for our traveller athletes to watch, which is really good fun. But yeah, I finally joined in one and I don't think I'll go back to commentating. I can't wait for the next one. <laughs> well, ironically, uh, your uncle commentated this one, uh, Paul Rouse, and uh, and it looks like whoever's injured has to be taking over the commentary role. So <laughs> yeah. Paul actually got broken ribs, so he's now doing the commentary. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, we're getting right off the topic here. But uh, how do you sprint? And and it's such a great question. And one of the sessions we do in our program is specifically based around sprint practice. And, and I'll use the example. Uh, Jordan, your brother was, uh, Liam, your brother was, uh, also joining in on Swift and, uh, I had him doing one of the sessions where he had to do some sprint practice and he was pretty proud of himself pushing 700 or 750 Watts in his, his 10 second sprint efforts. And, and then I said to him, uh, the race you did on the weekend, when you got to the sprint, you pushed 420 Watts. So what's, what's going on there? And he said, Oh, I thought I was pushing way more Watts than that, but it was, after riding at that intensity and then trying to sprint is a completely different thing to sprinting when you're fresh. And, you know, we're all very heroic sprinting uh, with fresh legs, but there's very few events that you will ever do in club racing, state racing, national or professional elite racing where you're sprinting fresh. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Flanders was 257K and then they're pushing out, you know, 14, 1500 watts for the last 175 meters. Um, and you know, that takes an incredible amount of fitness to, to do that, to sprint at your best, whether you're ridden 5k or 250 and the person who can sprint closest to their PB is the person who's going to win. And, and that's something we want to practice a lot in our training, sprinting when we're tired, not sprinting when we're fresh. Um, so a lot of the sessions we do, we have a hard Tuesday and then a relatively easy Wednesday where we're riding tempo. But in that session, we're doing sprint practice because we're still tired from the day before. So you still got that fatigue in your legs. So you get a little bit of a feeling of sprinting with tired legs. And, and that is the key to improving your sprint is to practice sprinting when you are actually not uh, feeling fresh. And look, the bunch rides that, that we do on a, and most people do around Australia or around the world uh, on a Saturday, um, 
know, if you've done an endurance bunch ride where you've been out for two or three hours, have a sprint at the end to a signpost or to a, to a traffic light or to, to something. Um, just at the end of that ride, you know, where everybody's ex exhausted and see the difference from the people who are really good sprinters when they're fresh and the people who are not so good sprinters because of, you know, they've got maybe 130K in their legs. Um, so really to answer the question, it is practicing it all the time, practicing it uh, when, when you're tired, practicing it in events. And I, I often say to someone, you know, at, at the end of that criterion, you were mid-pack. I didn't notice at the end that you sprinted. And the answers always come back. Well, what's the point? What, what am I sprinting for? And I, I'm just saying you're sprinting for the next time that you're going to win. You're practicing sprinting now for when you'll get an opportunity. Imagine if, if you're never in a winning position, but in, in five years of criterium racing, and then one day you get to sprint for the win. If you had practiced five years with the sprints, whether you were coming 40th, 70th or 15th, when that one day comes, you will have five years with the practice sprinting in races tired and know what when, when to launch your attack. If you're a, a person who needs 300 meters from the finish or a person who needs 75 meters from the finish, you've practiced all those scenarios. So that's the thing that I keep saying to people, use every opportunity to practice what, what one day will enable you to win a race. And, and, you know, if people could just think about that in their training, because the training is there so that when race day comes, you've already uh, had that experience in training and you can actually uh, execute what you've done that many times in training that, you know, I've got to go. I'm a, you know, it takes me ages to warm, warm my sprint up. I've got to go long um, or, or I've got such a great jump. I can leave it to the last minute. So I practice going from, you know, 200 watts to 900 watts in the space of five pedal revolutions you know, some people are really good at that. So, mm. you know, understanding uh, your timing for your sprint and you can do this on Swift all the time. Practice, you know, and I guarantee you, the next three or four races you do, you'll start to work out what suits you better in your sprinting. Are you a long sprinter or a short sprinter? And looking at uh, Van Aert last night, I definitely think he made a mistake. And Vanderpol made the right tactic by not sprinting till 170 or 150. Whereas Van Aert should have sprinted from 220 because by the time they got to the line, Van Aert was riding faster than Vanderpol, but he'd run out, of run out of room. So that tactic didn't work for him. And Sean Kelly uh, picked it. You know, if, if uh, Van Aert sprints short, uh, he'll lose. If Vanderpol sprints short, he'll win. And that's exactly what happened. So knowing what your capabilities are is really crucial to the outcome of, and knowing who your opposition is, obviously. And those two guys have ridden against each other since juniors. So I would have loved to have seen Philippe in that sprint to see, mm. you know, what was going to happen there. Because remember, um, Milan San Remo, Van Aert beat Alaphilippe um, in, the, in the sprint. So, mm. you know, mm. uh, you would think he could, he could do that again. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, it, it, it's just, a whole combination of things that you will actually pick up as as you start doing more and more practice sessions. As always, I'll um, I'll keep the listeners uh, updated on my <laughs> sprinting prowess. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's enthusiastically awaiting <laughs> more sprint results. Um, that brings me to another point, though, that you talk about a lot, and in terms of the triathlon uh, scene and triathletes, the similar sort of concept is that uh, you, you know you can't sprint as well when you're tired in cycling. You can't run as well 
after a swim and a ride and you say that so much um, and you often say to people, I don't care what your best half marathon is fresh. I want to know what it is in a time trial because you know, the better triathlete you are, the closer those times will be, whether you do it fresh or you're in a triathlon and um, yep. the less experienced you are, the bigger that gap is, right? Yeah, and let's just, before we go to the triathlon, just on the cycling, uh, sprinting as close to your PB when you're tired. That's exactly the point you're making, um, which we're going to talk about for triathletes. But for cyclists, say your PB 10 second power in a sprint might be 1,000 or 900 or 700 watts or 500 watts. Or if you're, you know, um, Cavendish, 1,500 watts, something like that. If, if you can sprint close to that at the end of a 90k road race or a 150k road race or a 250k road race you're going to win the closer you are to your pb sprint fresh when you're tired and i've got examples from my own career where i've, I've had a 10 second pb in the biggest race the national titles and it was within 40 watts of my best pb sprinting and you know there's no wonder you win the sprint because you're Instead of sprinting at you know seven hundred watts when your PB is eleven hundred, you're not probably you're going to be an also packed sprinter. But if you can sprint tired at at nine hundred and fifty or a thousand watts and your your PB is a thousand and fifty, you're probably going to win most races. And so so taking that to a triathlete, you know, and we've got a great example. Your uncle Paul uh, Rouse, who's you know, you know just just pick his numbers apart and. And it was a great exercise for me to go through his uh, history in the last sort of two or three years uh, from 2016. His best half marathon was a 131, um, which is for a, you know, nearly a 60 year old is, is pretty good running. Um, and in a triathlon, his best half marathon in a triathlon was 132. Yeah. And, and it's no wonder he won almost every race in a triathlon that he was in because, you know, A, there's not a lot of 60 year olds who can run 130 you know, one, one hour 30, uh, most of them are running between one hour 30 and two hours 10 at that age um, and, and slower. But if you can run close to your fresh um, mar half marathon or marathon or 10K, whatever event you're doing in a triathlon, if you're, if you're doing sprint, it's a 5K. If you're doing an Olympic, it's a 10K. If you're doing a half Ironman, it's a 21K. If you're doing a marathon, it's a, if you're doing an Ironman, it's a marathon. So the closer you can get, um, to your PB is you're going to be at the pointy end of your of your uh, results every time, and and you will smash PBs um, week in week out, race in race out by really working on that aspect of your of your running. And look, it's the same with swimming. It's the same with your riding. The closer you can be to your FTP, depending on the the distance of the event the better athlete you're going to be. You're going to be on the podium in your age group. If you can ride closer to your hundred percent FTP or closer to your uh, meterage per hundred meter pace in the, in the, in the pool and your PB for whatever event it is as a runner for 10 K for half, half marathon or a marathon, the closer you are to your fresh PBs for all those events, you're going to be pretty hard, to, pretty hard to defeat in any, any, any race that you do. Perfect. Uh, on that note, let's get into today's topic and talk about races uh, and talk about racing specifically. So uh, like we said at the start with racing's, racing season pre pretty much coming back now and a lot of us looking forward to race goals somewhere in 20 2021. Uh, 
talk me through the process that you go through in your own head when you're deciding whether a goal is uh, appropriate for an athlete or if you're going to try and persuade them potentially against a goal or tell them that it's not a good idea because uh, there's a few aspects to this where one I've heard you say the term a lot you need to respect the event that you're going to do and that's one aspect Um, but what are some of the decision making factors uh, and uh, things that you really bring to an athlete's attention when deciding to pick a race? That's a, it's a really good uh, topic to discuss and we have touched on, you know, over the journey uh, here and there, but um, now that it seems like in Australia and probably the, the rest of the world's going the other way where things are closing down because they're starting to have second and third waves of the uh, pandemic, but Australia is definitely heading in the right direction compared to the rest of the world. So we're, we're actually, you know, there's already states in Australia, Queensland and WA that, that have been holding races, um, you know, the majority of this last sort of two, two months anyway. So, but the rest of Australia is going to catch up in New South Wales and Victoria and Tasmania and South Australia and the Northern Territory are all going to be pretty much being able to, uh, you know, run races as normal. So, so it, it, you know, everybody's in that position again of, Oh, right. It's like a, a clean slate. What, what am I going to select? And, and it was ironic that uh, Port Mac opened and closed within the one day. Um, Port Mac's in May next year, 2021. And just like it used to be when, um, you know, uh, Ironman was just so popular. It, you know, I remember Melbourne Ironman opening and closing in five minutes. It was full in five minutes and it was near impossible to get into the race. And, mm. and, and that's where we're at now. We, we've, we've not had races and now uh, we've got the opportunity that looks like next year will be, you know, unless something goes backwards again with the pandemic, it looks like we're going to have a, a whole smorgasbord of races. Uh, so, so what, how do you go about that? And there's, there's so many different reasons why people end up selecting things. And, you know, it could be that you've wanted to do this. And I was actually on a bunch ride on the weekend and we happened to talk about the Melbourne to Warnable and, and I, the guy I was riding with, um, we both did the Melbourne to Warnable this year and we have both had really different experiences. He had uh, mechanical crashing incidents and I managed to get through and, and get to the finish. Okay. And, um, and, and he was saying, Oh, you know, that, you know, what a great race that is. And I said, it is a fantastic race. I've tried to do that race for nearly 25 years. And here I am at 62 lining up for the Melbourne to Warnable, which is one of the hardest cycling races I've ever done in my life. And, what am I doing at this age lining up against NRS riders who are between 17 and 25? We're in the same bunch. We start together, we race together. And here I am doing a race that I should have done 30 years ago when I was the same age. But, you know, most people would have said to me, well, that's a ridiculous goal at your age. What do you think's going to happen? And, and I just had a different mindset that day. It was, I wanted to enter the event and I wanted to finish it. That was, that was pretty much the focus I had. And, and Cam asked me where I came and I said, oh, I think I was fourth in C grade, but it, it just didn't matter to me. I would have loved to have won C grade or B grade or whatever race event I was in. But the satisfaction for me crossing that line didn't matter where I came. Um, the preparation I put into that race was totally focused on finishing. And, and, you know, lots of things happened during that six hours, 58 <laughs> that during that day where I had periods of good 
good periods, shocking periods, um, battling through some cramps some dehydration and coming back and, and eventually getting to the finish line. Um, and it was very emotional to finish um, uh, after going through such a, a really tumultuous day and period of training over six months of really, really, you know, putting myself through some, some massive training sessions and, and it, the reward was fantastic. And, and now that's the, the example I'm saying now is, you know, you can pick any event you want. That's, that's what I'm saying to everybody out there. There's nothing that anybody can do to stop you. You can select the, the, the most difficult the, and people might say the stupidest um, event that, you know, you know, the Ironman was, was an event that guys thought up in a bar. You know, one was a swimmer, one was a rider and one was a runner and they all reckon they were better and fitter athletes than each other. So they wanted to test each other by putting the three events together to see who, who would eventually win. And, you know, it, it, it's just one of those big noter events and, and, and it's taken off. Who would have thought from 1970 to, to now that it would be such a popular event and a, a real box ticker, bucket list ticker. And so, you know, we do get lots of different applications for an Ironman from people who've never run more than 50 minutes or ridden more than 30K or swam more than 500 meters entering the Ironman. And, you know, I'm never going to say that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea if you're not prepared to do all the things that I'm going to ask you to do. Um, it's an okay idea if you're happy to go through um, what, what's going to be between now and race day and be prepared on race day to, to, to execute. So there is no goal that's, that's ridiculous or wrong. Um, so let's get that right out there. So select something that you've had your, you've had your eyes set on that you want to do, that, that it might be a bucket list thing. I don't care. It's, it's what you want to do. So, so have a crack at doing it. You know, the examples would be obviously the Ironmans for next year, half Ironmans, Olympic distance in triathlon, um, you know, Grand Fondos as a cyclist, um, Three Peaks, which is unbelievably difficult event for most people. It's between seven and a half for the good riders and 14 hours for the, for the beginner riders. Um, and you've got, you know, that many other Grand Fondos all over the world, like we've done, like, you know, Tour of Flanders, that there's such bucket list things that are still massive days. You know, you've experienced both Roubaix and Flanders of five plus hours um, over some of the toughest terrain in the world. And, and the satisfaction you got finishing those events, even though you were actually reasonably underprepared for it as a cyclist, you were, you've been training as a, as a runner, but you still managed your day because you understood and respected everything about that event. And you didn't take it for granted that I've got this at any stage, because the minute you start thinking that is the minute you're going to, you know, you're going to actually have a poor outcome and it could be literally 10 K from the finish after you've done, you know, 170 K and, and it all falls apart at the end. And so they're the things that uh, to start with is selecting an event. Obviously you select something that's going to suit you better. That would be the first thing I would, I would be pinpointing, but you know, we've already talked about some of the selection goal races over the past where people, very heavy guys picking, you know, hilly courses and, and that, that's not the best outcome for you, but, but yeah, have a crack. Um, absolutely. This is the time to select, select what you want to do. And there's, there's a whole, a whole lot of processes we go through, which, um, which is probably what we should be talking about next.
Yeah, definitely. Um, some great points you raised in there. One of the key ones that stands out to me is that no goal is um, quote unquote stupid. It's just whether you're willing to do the work. And we actually just recorded a podcast, which is re- being released next week with elite marathon runner, Dane Verway. And a, a topic Dane touched on was that his goals need to really alight him, you know, and really motivate a fire inside him. And it doesn't matter if the goal is really hard, if it really motivates you to do the work to get there, then it's going to be worth it. But if you're just picking the goal and, you know, actually going to do the work, which, which happens a lot, you know, you see a lot of people sign up for a marathon or something like that. And then suddenly 10 weeks out, they actually haven't run. Um, and that, that's making it really hard on yourself to, um, to get through the goal. Um, and like the example you just used was a podcast we did a couple of months ago where um, the title was how a hundred k- uh, kilogram cyclist became an ultimate hill climber. And that was, you know, a, one of the heavier athletes that you coached um, came to you and said, I want to, you know, get fitter and, and lose weight and um, become a hill climber and complete this um, epic hill climb race. Uh, and he did so. And so, again, no goal is unattainable as long as you're willing to do the work. And that story was a perfect example of that if you haven't listened to that podcast. Um, but like you just said, talk to me, talk me through some of the um, biggest factors that you need to consider. And I think one of the ones I wanted to start on asking you is, considering your level of ability so the difference in what you have to consider if you're an absolute beginner and for example you've never done a triathlon like those examples we said you said before the people who have never really run or ridden that far and then signing up to an Ironman um, compared to if you're a more experienced triathlete picking some of these goals yeah it's a it's a really good uh, a good topic and one that really needs to be uh, understood and and the person who's got experience that is a really significant advantage uh, against the beginner. And there's so many things that, that experience enables you to do not only in your preparation, but on race day. So the beginner has none of that. He has, has none of the failures, none of the successes. He just has anxiety about the decision he's made, whether it be being talked into it by his mates or, or whatever the, the reason he's selected, it doesn't really matter, but that's the selection he's made. And, and, you know, we can talk about, we'll use the Ironman as an example, but there's plenty of other, you know, races that you could, you, you, you could be thinking of. Off the top of my head, there's the, the Everesting in cycling has become a massive thing where, where you can do an Everest on Zwift, you can do an Everest on your local hill. Um, and for those who have never heard of what Everesting is, it's basically uh, on a bike climbing the same meterage as Mount Everest. And, you know, uh, Contador did it on a on a a, tra- uh, a smart trainer, and I think it took him I don't know eight hours or something. And the majority of everyday cyclists might take twelve to fourteen hours to do the I think it's eight thousand meters of climbing. Um, but you know, th- I've seen some taking twenty four. Yeah, yeah, but that's something that's great to say. I'm going to Everest, but you know, let's just have a think about what what preparation you need to do for that. And it's great to say I'm going to do the Ironman. But did, did you realize that it had a marathon in it? Did you realize that it's, it's an 180K uh, ride? Did you realize that it's nearly a 4K swim? Um, you know, I'm picking three peaks. Did you realize there's 4,500 meters of climbing in three peaks and it's 245K and it could possibly take you 12 hours? They're the, they're the things that I want to make sure before we take the next step in our, in our program is that you understand the requirements of the event that you've selected and do you actually respect that this is no walk in the park and and that's why we've picked goals that are hard because we want to push ourselves and test ourselves and and see see uh, how we cope that's that's what goal setting is picking something that's uh 
uh, out of your reach or out of your comfort zone. Um, and, you know, they're the things that get us up in the morning um, or make us stay in bed because we, we're, we're just losing the plot or, or we haven't got the right <laughs> mindset. Um, so, so really understanding what the decision you've just done is going to mean for you going forward between the day you sign up for that and uh, come race day. And, you know, I know already the people who sign up for Port Mac uh, during the week you know, if I was that person who signed up for Port Mac, I would be searching for every possible um, assistance that I could get that's going to help me along that journey. And, and you know, talking to people who've done it before, um, uh, aligning yourself with, uh, with other people who have experienced it so that you're getting as much information and feedback. The motivation to train would be incredibly good. Um, at that point and that's all the initial stuff that happens you know you're, you're gleaning information you're like a, a sponge you're, you're just you know you, you just want to hear a story from someone else who's done the Ironman and, and you can't get enough information from them it's you know tell me more tell me you know how did you feel what, what preparation did you do how much training did you do how long did you take um, for each leg you know how many weeks uh, or months did you uh, put in beforehand um, how much time should I have between now and race day should it be two months should it be eight months you know all these are the questions that you've got you know how much riding should i do in my program each week each day each session how much running should i do should i be running fast should i be running slow there's just you know should i swim open water should i just swim in the pool should i join a squad should i should i run with a running squad there's just hundreds and hundreds of questions that are that are spinning around in your mind um and and you're just getting so confused with it all um and, and, and that's a good thing because it, it, you're already, you're, if you're thinking like that, that means you're respecting the requirements. If you're not thinking like that, you're possibly not going to do any of the work and you're possibly not going to enjoy the process from when you just signed up this week to race day. The whole thing's going to be hard work. Not that the training isn't hard work, but if you don't have the right respect and mindset, the whole process is going to be a chore and unenjoyable and when you come to race day i guarantee it won't be fun either not that it's it's easy for those who are well prepared it's still a tough day but the mindset's completely different you know they've, they've got a job to do and they're hell bent on achieving it um, whereas the person who's just picking a an event with no respect for it or care or understanding of the requirements the, the, the whole process is going to leave them where they'll possibly never run or ride or swim again they may, they may end up be, you know, just a one event wonder and put them off forever. Or they could be the opposite going, I totally stuffed that up. I'm never doing that again. I'm now, now I'm going to pick another goal and I'm going to do it properly. So, you know, you do learn more from your mistakes than you do from, from your victories. But, but they're the things that I think you should be focusing on um, right now. Uh, if you haven't made that decision of what event you're going to choose, these are the things you should consider. Um, what 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 do you, what do you want to achieve you, yourself personally as an athlete? And I'm off, I'm often asking you and many people that I'm, what's next for you? You know, you've achieved um, a sub whatever time in a in a half marathon or a marathon. You know, whatever your goal was, and you know, what's next? You've ticked that box. What what are you thinking about next? And if you're not thinking like that, you, you're not moving forward, in my opinion. You, you need to be always considering. But, you know, at the same time, enjoy the spoils of what you just achieved, but then reassess and, and you know, think again what's next. And, uh, and so it is, a, it is a big process uh, from 
deciding what is next for you. And now we're right at that particular point as to what, what do we want to do with the next six months or 12 months of our, of our fitness or our, our uh, you know, it's our passion, isn't it? Whatever, whatever we love doing, you know, what's a particular event that I think um, that would really get me focused and motivated and training and, and don't forget, it doesn't have to be an event. It can be, I want to, I want to be able to ride with my group on a Saturday and not be dropped. I want to actually want to, uh, have some say in the outcome of what happens and put some hurt on people. I don't want to be a follower. I want to be a leader. I want to be an instigator in the bunch. Um, I want to, I want to improve. I want to lose weight and be lighter on the climbs. I want to be stronger. I want to be able to sit at the coffee shop and, and have someone say far out, Jordan, you killed it today. That, that feeling of someone saying that out loud is so rewarding. And that's not why you do it. It's a personal satisfaction, but that, it also helps, helps with your journey. Um, so yeah, that last one's a really good point because it's actually a really common uh, thing to happen in a bunch is that when you're improving, someone will say to you, whoa, you're improving and whoa, where have you come from? And it's actually a good, for us, it's a good tangible measurement of someone's improvement when they're, when they come to us and say, oh, my bunch has, has seen the improvement in me. Uh, it's a really good external reward. Yeah. And, uh, some of the people will say, well, I can't tell by the data, um, whether the bunch ride was fast or not, or whether I was going well, but the people in the bunch can always tell where, how well you're going. And, and, and that's often better than the data. Um, you know, a lot of the bunch rides can be affected by wind, by rain. Uh, the bunch could have 40 people in it in one week and could have six in it the next week. Yet, yet you, you really rode well and with six people and with 40 people that you rode much faster. Obviously the bunch rides faster with more people. So, you know, things like that aren't good measurements, but but for having people tell you that far out you were strong today, that's such a rewarding comment to hear um, from both the coach and from uh, the athlete's point of view. Definitely, definitely. So what sort of, this is an open-ended question, but uh, what expectations are you, do you want athletes to be really clear on heading into a certain event? Um, and the complexity or the difficulty of the event makes a difference, but and even use yourself as, as an example. Well, what expectations do you have of yourself when you pick such a hard event like Melbourne to Warrnambool or Three Peaks? And what, what kind of expectations are you making sure an athlete is really clear on when they pick anywhere from an Olympic goal to a, a half Ironman or Ironman goal? Yep. I think the initial conversation is around, um, to start with, you know, how much time have you given yourself <clears throat> between now and race day? And, and, you know, if race days in February and we're discussing this, this in October, it's not a real, I'm talking Ironman as an example, or the Melbourne to Warrnambool. And they're, they're similar, you know, the Melbourne to Warrnambool is seven hours on the one, in the one discipline. Um, the Ironman can be between, you know, eight hours for the elite to, you know, 14, 16 hours for the, for the novice. Um, so are you giving yourself enough time to prepare? That, that's the very first question that I'm, I'm going to ask everybody. And, and I, in an ideal world, we want to have more time. Remember, you know, you've got to have been able to practice, if you're doing the Melbourne to Warrnambool, that many rides that are between four and seven hours. You know, if you've got 16 weekends between now and then, and you've only ever ridden, you know, I'm talking ridiculous here. If you've only ridden, the longest you've ridden is 100k, and you've entered the Melbourne to Warrnambool, you know it's a 
pretty unachievable um, probably event to go into. Um, but if we if you chose three peaks and you're still only you know I have coached people who didn't who hadn't you know had never ridden up the one in twenty without stopping, which is a local event, a local course in Melbourne in the Dandenongs. It's a you know between a fifteen minute and a twenty five to thirty minute climb, depending on your ability. I've coached someone who's done a, a three peaks whose first ride he couldn't get up the one in twenty. So so he's he's going from a thirty to forty k rider to 245Ks and you know the longer time he gives himself the better prepared he's going to be but if he doesn't have time and he's picked the event too late then we have to deal with the time that we've got um, so you have to be prepared once you've selected the time frame and you're the one who selected that because you've come to um, get the coaching assistance with 12 weeks or 18 or 36 or 50 weeks so if you've come to me with 12 weeks you're going to have to work extremely hard in that 12 weeks compared to someone who can spread the load out. And what comes with that? Illness, injury, fatigue, all these things are going to be major factors in, in uh, the outcome that you're going to come uh, experience on race day. The person who's got longer, a longer preparation will be able to uh, have a load that's manageable for a, for a spread out period of time. To be clear on that part, if someone comes to you with 12 or 16 or 20 weeks to an extreme event, uh, what you, w- you would say to them, it's really not realistically enough time, um, but you would help them if they're saying, well, I'm doing the event no matter what. I mean, you probably try and advise them against the event, correct? But if they're saying, I'm doing the event no matter what, can you help me? There's not, there's not a whole lot you can really do, is there? <laughs> no, the only thing I can actually do is say to them, are you prepared to give me as many hours as you possibly can between now and that time? And so that's the the second part of the, of what I said earlier. First of all, what time frame is it from now till race? And then how much time have you got each week, each day? You know, can you train six hours a week or can you train 20 hours a week? And somewhere in between is where people will land depending on what job, what family, um, what commitments they have. So, if you pick a shorter time frame from 12 weeks to 16 weeks for an Ironman or three peaks, then you need to understand the next thing. The second thing is how much time do you have each day or each week? That, that has to be the next topic is, well, we, we can probably do this, but we need to be training probably 12, 14, 16, 20 hours a week. Are you prepared to do that? And if they say, yeah, no worries. Then, then we've actually, you know, we're not as bad as, as, the person who then says to me, well, actually, no, I've only probably got six hours a week and I want to do the Ironman. Well, you know, okay, you're entered, you're going to do it. So we'll have to come up with a plan. And, you know, we're running a marathon. We're riding nearly 200K and we're swimming nearly 4K. So how much preparation do you need for a marathon? Ideally, you need six months for a marathon. That's on its own if you want to be well prepared but now you're giving me 12 weeks and you're giving me six hours a week. So, so yes, we can still try to, to do the best we can in that time. But, but I'm all the time reminding the person about the decision they've made and the disrespect they're giving the event. Um, so, so it's an extreme example. When, like, it is. And, yeah. and there are, I have been faced with that, you know, that athlete who's asked for, for that to happen. And, and got a little bit frustrated with me by trying to talk them out of it. Um, 
but if, if that's what they want to do, then we, we try to manage, manage the load accordingly. And look, if someone's giving you six to eight hours a week and they're trying to do an Ironman, you know, on a weekend, by the time they get to the week 13, 14, 15, they should, all, all they can do is train on the weekend because they haven't enough time left to do anything else. So, so it is, it is a real issue um, with the type of uh, event that you pick with the time that you have from now to the event and the time you can train um, during the week, um, the time that you have available, you have to really understand. So, so I really focus the, the discussion based around those two things. Um, and then the third thing is, um, well, how motivated are you to do the program that is going to be really, really time um, um, precious on, on your whole life between now and, and race day? Um, and you've got a job, you've got a family, you've got all these commitments, you know, we don't want it to be, end up in divorce, you know, from your work and from your family. We, we, you know, we've always spoken in our podcast about balance and not being extreme. And so that's the third type of conversation I have is, are you going to upset the equilibrium of your life as it is right now? You know, is your, is your family going to, uh, almost uh divorce you from you know because you're divorcing them from from because you're taking all the time for yourself so it is you know it is a very selfish decision to to do this so is everybody on board with it and that that's something that you actually have to consider you know when you're making these decisions who you know is it going to be something that's good for your family or for your work or for yourself or is it going to be a negative impact on everybody um so, so there's times and places for big goals and there's times and places for smaller goals. And, and that's where I try to direct people is, you know, maybe don't, let's not do an Ironman in 16 weeks. Let's do a half Ironman or an Olympic, make that your goal. And, you know, then you can find out, you know, whether you're a like, like doing it, you know, but we still have the people, no, I'm entering the Ironman. That's what I want to do. But so, so they're the discussions we would have um, on this, on this topic. And, and it can and can be quite uh, heated at times because you're I'm, they're contacting me for help, yet I'm giving them roadblocks as to why the, the se selection they've made might not have been a very smart one. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, um, as long as you respect what the event is, you're prepared to do the work, um, you will be able to achieve the outcome. Um, it may it may not be at a higher level than you probably expected. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I gave the example for the Melbourne to Warrnambool, you know, completing that event when you're riding against, you know, the best young riders in Australia and riding with them for, you know, 120 K, it, it was just an achievement that I was interested in just making sure that I got to the finish. And, you know, I think there was, I don't know, 30, 40% of the, of the riders who started didn't finish um, or missed the cutoff. Um, to get that little Melbourne to Warrnambool medal, and I've I've got millions of medals since I've been seven or eight years of age, ribbons and medals, and that Melbourne to Warrnambool is up there with my Ironman Kona medal. Um, uh, you know, you know, the Australian the Australian uh, Ironman medal. There, those three medals, and that's what it means to to me. And and so something like a goal like that, you know, you I I selected that goal. 25 years ago and you know pretty much trained for that whole period before eventually i got a crack at it and uh and you know 
one of the things that I tried to do all of my life was keep my fitness as high as possible so that I could pick an event without having to start from the beginning. Because when I selected the Warnie a year out, I, I was already where I wanted to be. All I had to do was lift for the extremeness of the Warnie, um, which meant adding you know, lots more four, five, six hour rides into my, my weekly bunch ride, which were already four and a half. I would really like to ask you about, uh, I will ask you more in detail about that moment of Warnable day on another podcast, because it's, it's a, a tough story and it was a really tough day for you. And uh, I think everyone knows that one of your biggest strengths is your mental toughness and you're really challenged that day. So it'll be good to dive into mm. that. Uh, what you said in there about respecting the event uh, also plays into that means you have to understand there is a minimum requirement required in the training to get to that event. And there is um, minimal things that you need to do if you're going to get your body prepared for, for the event you, you, that you've chosen. And something you said in there would actually shock a lot of people. I know, I know it shocked me when you first talk, uh, were, were talking to me about marathon training and preparation. And just then you said, if you're preparing for Melbourne to Warney, you know, it's a seven hour event. You need to be doing multiple four to seven hour rides. And that would actually be a shock to a lot of people because you think, well, I do my bunch ride on Saturday. That's enough three or four hours. And you're saying, no, it needs to be five, six, seven hours, um, which can seem a little bit over the top or um, unnecessary. And I know the first time you were teaching me about uh, yeah, marathon training and you were ex- explaining that you get your athletes to do three, four hour, really long, slow runs. And I said, that's extreme, isn't it? Because they're basically going to be running a marathon in training. And you're saying, well, how, how else do they expect their body to be prepared for it? You know, I just assumed that a two hour run or eventually maybe a two and a half hour run would suffice. And you're saying no way. Um, and that's a, that's a factor that you have to consider, isn't it? That, you know, if you're going to be doing this event in race, you actually need to be practicing these sort of distances in training. And a lot of people actually wouldn't expect that. Yeah. And, and that's the next conversation we have on, on that initial contact is, um, and they're, they're so eager to find out oh, what, what sort of things should I be doing in my program? And, and I'm saying, you know, the three things that we base our whole emphasis around is consistency, which is, you know, the frequency of your training, the duration, which is, you know, building an overload process over the period of 12, 20, 30 weeks. And the intensity is final. The final piece of the, the jigsaw is the intensity. So, so the consistency is one of the key things in any goal setting program that, that you select. If you don't have consistency it doesn't matter how hard you train you're still not going to get to the start line as good as a person who trains consistently and we all we've already talked about it today about being moderate in everything not extreme Um, so if you can consistently train six seven days a week um, missing very few sessions compared to the person who trains absolutely flat out for three or four days we've talked about this many times the person who gets the consistent right will outperform the person who just trains flat out for short periods of bursts. So, so really we're just, we're just honing in on that aspect of the program. Just be moderately consistent and in your execution of a day to day program, week to week, month to month, just tick the boxes off, do the required sessions and not have, periods where you've missed three, four, five sessions and, and have the mentality, ah, oh, I've stuffed this week up. I'll just start again on Monday. Don't think like that. I've stuffed whatever I've stuffed up, which might be two days. I need to start now. I need to catch the next session now. 
and not wait till next Monday because that just breeds inconsistency. So one of the first things we teach our athletes is, is trying to get green on, for example, training peaks is, is green means you've done the session correctly. And we try to get that in our program each day. We don't want to see any reds, which means you haven't done it or oranges, which means you've half done it. Um, so, so we try and instill the consistency aspect into, into everything we do. And as you know, when, when I put in front of you, you're going to ride six hours, four times before you do this Ironman. And you're also going to run possibly two hours in the morning and up to an hour or two hours in the afternoon. You're just going to look at me saying, are you kidding? Mm. But that's the requirements. If, you, if you're a person who's going to actually run four hours on race day or possibly four and a half in the Ironman, and you've only trained for 90 minutes or, or two hours, you're going to go well in the race for 90 minutes or two hours because that's what your body's been adapted to. So you have to experience in training what's going to happen on race day. Um, so, you know, if you don't do it in training, come race day, it's brand new and your body's not been through that journey. If you haven't ridden more than three hours and come race day, you actually ride six, you're possibly not going to run at all. Yeah. So, so there's so many factors that you have to, when we say respect the event, you have to respect the training program. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're going to be well short come race day. That's, that's a kind of good way to finish. And when you talk about the um, ex- extreme nature of some of the aspects of a training program, when it's an extreme event, you're doing, you're doing an Ironman, doing a half Ironman, doing endurance events, they're extreme events. Um, but the whole training program is an extreme. And that's a really important point to remember um, when, you, when you talk about these requirements you know, from start to finish of a 30-week program, it's not extreme training the whole time. You're not doing, for Melbourne and Warrnambool, you're not doing four to seven-hour rides every weekend for 30 weeks straight, are you? You're doing it at certain periods. There's certain periods of the training program that are really hard, and then there's, there's sections that are easy. And so it's not crazy intense the whole time, but it just means that when it's time to do those things for that short period, whether it's two weeks or four weeks, you do it then, um, and the other times you manage the program. That's a great point to make. And most people say, uh, we've got two types of people here. We've got the person who's, who's motivated so well. They've picked a really good time frame. Uh, they're prepared to put whatever hours in for preparation and they just go about it. That, I love that athlete, but that athlete's the hardest one to coach almost because they're too motivated. They train too much. They don't recover enough. They think they have to do six hours every single ride with the maximum intensity and they end up riding themselves into the ground. And, you know, we've got some Ironman triathletes doing exactly the same thing, just training way too hard and not recovering enough. Um, there are periods, just like you said, where we need to do those endurance uh, long days where we've, we've got, you know, possibly a six or seven hour day. Um, but, but we progress our way from the program, through the program by, you know, the, I said at the start, frequency, duration, intensity. So we keep the consistency going, which is the frequency, and then we slowly build the duration if the furthest you've run is 30 minutes, we're not going to start you in an Ironman program at two hours. We're going to start you at 30 minutes and build you to 40 to 50 to 60 over a progress period of weeks. And the same with the bike. If you've never ridden more than hundred K your first ride's not going to be 180 K. You know, that, that might happen 16 weeks into the program. So the duration goes along with the consistency. And as you get fitter, then you can start doing the intensity. And they're the, they're the three things that are the basis of every program. And if you 
don't respect what the consistency and frequency is, and you just try and do hard sessions all the time from the beginning, you're going to be left short. You're going to get incredibly fatigued. You could get sick and you could injure yourself. So at the end of the day, these are the things that are going to, how unlucky was I? I got sick. How unlucky I got injured. I'd, how unlucky I just got this real fatigue. Well, no, it's, it's purely because you've managed your program in a horrible method. Um, and, and that comes back to respecting um, that you can't just have it in a minute. It takes six months or it takes three months or it takes nine months. And you have to think of the big picture all the time. I can't go from being, you know, a really good 180K rider from a 60K rider. It's going to take me months to get to become a good 100K rider, then a 120K rider, then 150. The same with the marathon. I can't just go and run 30K when the furthest I've run is 10. If you did that, you'd be out of action for three weeks with such soreness. And so we, we progressed from 10K to 12 to 15 to 20 over a period of months. And that sounds very obvious to everybody. <laughs> yeah. But why the hell do people continue to do what I just said is not what you do? And yeah. that's, that's why people, once they've got a, a glimpse of how a program can really help them, then they'll never turn back. And, and the old ways are gone. But it, it might take years for people to actually comprehend that, that that is the method that's going to work. It, it is going to work every time. The other method, there's going to be some unlucky thing happen to you, which is not unlucky. It's predictable. The thing that's going to happen to you is very predictable. I think we'll wrap up there. That's a good way. To, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot, there's a lot to uh, consider in that, especially with racing season coming up. We're hoping that that can help you make decisions that... Um, will either help you get through a program better or uh, make you pick a goal that um, will light the fire inside you, but also is something that is appropriate to your uh, situation at the moment. So that's it from us for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to get more information, um, you can go to getfastpodcast.com. Uh, you can join our email list there. and That's the best way to get access to our tri coaching training programs to help you train smarter and race faster. That's it for this episode. Thanks, Dad, for joining me. We'll see you next time.